Our Father, so our, our hearts long for the promise that you have made in your word that we will rise, that we who are the redeemed, the reconciled to Christ, will by our Lord Jesus, by the exertion of your own power, be conformed to the body of your glory, never to sin again, to give to you in perfection what our hearts long for now, but can only give in imperfection, and that is the fullness of our worship, all of who we are, all of the joys and delights that you give us in the Spirit, we will know in fullness when we no longer live by faith, but we live by sight, and how we cannot even yet fathom the full glories of what that sight will behold for all of eternity. So keep us evermore looking and longing for this day that we might live more for you in this world, courageously, faithfully, humbly, obediently to our great King, our God, and our Savior. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, we uh, recently finished uh, Revelation chapter 4 through 5, and being in Revelation 4 and 5 for the, Revelation 4 and 5 for the last few weeks, we have considered, at least as it's uh, located there, the topic of worship. We've considered the, the picture of worship that God has given to us by this little glimpse in heaven, and it's a little glimpse of the worship in heaven that takes place as God anticipates the establishment of his kingdom on the earth. And it is a picture of God's purposes for all of humanity. So really what we witness there in Revelation 4 and 5 is the culmination of God's purpose in creating anything and redeeming those whom he would. In fact, God created us to be worshipers. It's essentially what it means to be human. To be human is to be a worshiper. It is what it means to be made in the image of God. One rightfully said, we are, every one of us, unceasing worshipers. And that's the truth. Adam and Eve were created to worship God. And their failure and the entrance of sin into the world didn't change this fundamental reality that human beings were made to be worshipers. It didn't change that fundamental and consistent impulse that resides within everyone to worship, to worship something, to worship someone. It is part of who we are. Sin merely corrupted it. It focused it on the wrong object. And so we see that throughout Scripture that it is misdirected worship, not an absence of worship, that is the problem of humanity. Some familiar text, Romans 1.25, they exchanged the worship of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Paul, preaching to the Athenians, he says in Acts 17.23, therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Even as we march forth in the book of Revelation and anticipate coming to that description of the rise of the kingdom of the Antichrist, it is associated with worship. So Revelation 13, 4 and 12 says this, They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And he makes the, those who dwell on the earth to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Healed. The point is, is that all of humanity, whether belonging to Christ or whether outside of Christ, are worshipers. 
unregenerate man worships, they just worship the wrong thing, the wrong person. So when we think about the corruption that we see in the world, and particularly in our society, whether it be morally, socially, politically, the core issue is an issue of worship. It's all an evidence of either worshiping the wrong things or worshiping the right things. God's work in salvation, then, is to restore true worship. It is to reorient the heart of man towards worship's only right object, which is the triune God revealed in Scripture and revealed in Christ, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father, from whom are all things, the Son, through whom and for whom are all things, and the Spirit, by whom all things are brought into being and empowered. It is the triune God. Now that said, how can we define worship? Well, generally, uh, we could define worship in the broadest possible sense, uh, in maybe in this way. It's that which we esteem as the most valuable, that we revere, and that we give ourselves to serve and to adore. And, of course, that is general because it could refer to either good things or things that are sinful. But specifically, how do we define worship related to the Christian, related to the regenerate person? Well, there is an expanded definition that I've always liked. Don't worry, you won't be asked to repeat this later, but I'm going to give it to you, and then I'll give you a shorter one. The expanded definition is this. It's from uh, one theologian named Bruce Ware. He says this, worship springs from a, just follow along, it's up on the screen. Worship springs from a spirit-illumined understanding of the greatness and beauty of God through the revelation of his glorious perfections and works, especially manifest in the life, ministry, and accomplishments of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, giving rise by the Spirit to deep and abiding inward affections of reverence, love, adoration, gratitude, and praise for God and Christ above all else, and yielding outward behavior marked by an ultimate joyous and spirit-empowered allegiance, devotion, submission, and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking in everything to trust God's promises in Christ, turn from sin's deceptive temptations, carry out God's will and in attitudes, of, and attitudes and actions of love and righteousness toward God and man, and live all of life by the power of the Spirit to the glory of God through Christ alone. Now, I love that definition because it's so full, it's so complete, and I think it's so right on. However, it's hard to carry that one around in your memory. So what would maybe be a shorter definition that would, in summary, capture all of those things? Well, let me suggest this one to you. A shorter definition of worship in a Christian sense is this. It is a spirit-empowered, whole-person response to the glory of God revealed in Christ. A spirit-empowered, whole-person response to the glory of God as revealed in Christ. Now... To say those things, however, is to say what worship is in reality or what it should be. That's not necessarily how worship is understood by the church at large and in many ways in popular Christianity. In popular Christian culture, the concept of worship is almost exclusively tied to, what would you say? Music, exactly. Almost exclusively tied to music. Uh, we speak of the worship band we speak of the worship team, we speak of the worship leader, and we refer to having a time of worship, which usually means one thing, it means singing, it means music. In short, then, we could say worship is defined almost entirely as an experience, an emotional experience related to music or dynamic preaching that produces an emotional, strong emotional reaction. Of course, 
by saying that is not to say that emotions are wrong or bad. It is to say this, that emotions are not the best indicator of worship. Emotions can be deceived, and those things which manipulate them can be wrong and off-course and misleading. That's the problem. So there's a need then, when we think about worship, to discern what is true and false worship even within the church. And to begin, I think it's helpful to set a very general framework as we're going to move into some of the main points I want to address. And that is this. What is the general framework? It is to recognize that worship, in a Christian sense, again, has both external and internal realities to it. External and internal parts or components. Externally, of course, Israel was commanded to worship God. And God laid out very detailed instructions about how his people were to worship him and live holy and distinct among all of the nations. Just read the law and particularly the book of Leviticus. It's very detailed. There were detailed instructions that covered every aspect of life of how they were to live righteously and in obedience to their covenant God and to the creator of all men. When we come to the new covenant... The detail is not, and application is not nearly as precise or full. Rather, it gives us some instructions, but largely principles that are to define Christian worship in the era of the new covenant. Some of these basic principles for gathered worship are the reading and preaching of Scripture. He talks about this, Paul does, in First and Second Timothy. It is to be marked with prayer, singing, observance of the ordinances of baptism and of the Lord's Supper. And of course, in both covenants, all of these things are only truly acceptable to God when they are attended with the reality of faith. So by saying that, then, this leads to an important point. Not everything, then, that presents itself as worship externally is acceptable to God. It has this requirement of the need of the genuineness of faith offered to him as a genuine expression of faith. It is to say then that it's possible to participate in external worship without knowing the internal reality of faith. But it actually gets more complicated than that because it is possible to have a kind of internal experience to external worship that is also false. It's also possible to have the experience of externally participating in worship, even worship that is prescribed by God, having an internal response, and yet none of it being acceptable worship to God. And so it's on this last point that, and that things get a little bit tricky, don't they? But it's also the point in which we need to be the most clear so that we can discern what we are giving to God, and in fact, whether we are true worshipers of God. And again, it's because it's possible to have a so-called experience of worship attended with emotions and even some connection to the presentation of the truths of God while remaining unregenerate, misled, and a stranger to true worship. So we need to be clear, and we need to understand then what is it that constitutes true worship. And yet we can't deny that this is a reality because Scripture is replete with warnings against that very thing, a kind of worship offered to God that isn't acceptable by Him. We can think of many examples. Israel before Sinai, they heard, they heard of God's grace and His covenant faithfulness. They saw it displayed before their eyes, both in the Exodus out of Egypt, both at Mount Sinai where they heard His voice thundering from the mountain and the lightning and all of those things that attended with it. And their response to that was that they will obey God and keep His commandments. And yet God said, oh, in Deuteronomy 5, that they truly had a heart to follow me. 
In other words, they, as the congregation of God's people, heard those things, they responded to those things, and yet their heart was never truly transformed. And the writer of Hebrews says that it was not united with faith. God rebuked Israel repeatedly for doing the things he commanded, but having hearts that indulged sin and that were far away from him. Many places, of course, that fills the prophets and other other points of the Old Testament, but let me just give you one that always comes to my mind. It's in Isaiah chapter 1. Just listen, I'm going to read it in verse 4 and then 12 and 13. He says, addressing the nation of Israel, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. Later he says, when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. And then in that context, that, those verses surrounding that, he speaks of how he hates their new moon festivals, how he can endure them no longer, how when they spread their hands out for prayer to the God of the Israel, he is not going to listen to them. In fact, he is requiring instead of them not those things, but true repentance. Jesus warns of these things as well. He says that some can attend the preaching of the word and be among the people of God can hear the word and immediately receive it with joy and have an emotional experience and a response to it and yet then go on and warn and said, but they never bring forth fruit. That is the fruit that attends genuine salvation and regeneration in Matthew 13. He says that. Or Jesus also warns that it's possible to be regular and active in the attendance of the corporate assembly, of the hearing of the word and singing and all of those things, and even active in Christian service while never truly knowing him. And so there is that familiar passage and warning in Matthew chapter 7 when he says to those who did those things, depart from me, I never knew you. There can even be gathering together to hear true preaching, but it's not gathering to hear it in faith and for the purpose of obedience. One classic and clear example of that is found in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 33. The people gather to hear the prophet Ezekiel, to hear a message from God, and yet God says this, Behold, you are to them, speaking you as their Ezekiel, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not practice them. There can be preaching and gathering of preaching and the corporate assembling of God's people, but it's only designed really to serve the self-interest of the people and not to the end of the glory of God and service to him. So Paul warns about that in 2 Timothy. He says, The time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickle, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. So it's gathering, it's preaching, It's singing, and yet it's false. The desire in that case is to be encouraged, but not changed. Built up, but not brought low. To hear of our value to God, but but not to think less of ourselves so that he may be all in all. Not to say with John, uh, John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. So then the question still is, then how can we know if we are giving to God acceptable worship? How can we know if our worship is true or whether it's false, whether it's about us or whether it's about God, whether it's actually something that God may hate and find offensive or accept as that which is pleasing and honoring to him? In other words, what are the true marks of worship or the marks of true worship? 
Well, this is a large and expansive topic, and I titled this message just some thoughts on true worship because that's simply what it is. But I will at least try to organize those thoughts into two main categories and, and suggest to you a way to think through this. The two main categories are this, to think of worship as a public event, so that is the external aspect of it, and worship as a personal experience, a public event or as personal experience. And under each of these, I'll note two defining marks. As a public event, it should be God-centered and Christ-centered and word-centered. That's what would mark true worship. And as a personal experience, it must be the fruit of regeneration and evidenced by obedient faith. So, let's try to cover some of these and discern our own worship. First, thinking of worship as a public event. A public event. That is, or we could say corporate worship, but I needed a P and an E to be parallel here. So we ended up with public event. Uh, But really what we're talking about in that is public worship, that which is done outside for others to see and to observe. What happens when the people of God come together in the context of the worship of their God and offer to him worship and offer to him worship so worship is a, is a public event however even in saying worship as a public event it's not really so much about an event or an activity but our gathering together demonstrates the very essence of who we are as the redeemed people of God it evidences the things that we as the redeemed people of God truly treasure and the things that we truly believe and the things that we truly hold dear all of that is going to be evidenced by what takes place when we come together so the event and the act of worship in that sense then is merely a reflection and the evidence of the reality and the quality of our view of God and our worship of him and the depth of our being and who we are so what then should mark true worship true worship let me suggest for you this first of all and this point we'll spend the most time on so these aren't evenly balanced just so you know but the first one is this That worship, as a public event, worship in terms of how we evaluate what we do when we come together as God's people, should have this distinct characteristic, that it is God-centered. That it is God-centered, that it is God-centered, and that it is Christ-centered. But as soon as we say that, then we have to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to be God-centered? What does it mean to be Christ-centered? Is it just saying his name a lot? Is it God-centered if we say the word God a lot? If we quote a lot of Bible verses? Is that what it means to be God-centered? One would gather this from as as much from contemporary music, if we could use that as an example. It means rather not only that we say his name a lot. It means rather that God himself and his revelation in Christ is the goal and the center of all that we do. Not necessarily our experience of these truths, but the truth of God as he is in himself. We're going to expand this just a little bit. But let me give you one quote that I think captures this well. What ought to make worship delightful to us is not in the first instance its novelty or its aesthetic beauty, but its object. God himself is delightful, wonderful, and we learn to delight in him. So in order for a service that we would evaluate as one that is true worship and demonstrates the reality of God as the highest object and value of our hearts, then it should show in all that we do and we say and we sing and everything that we order in our coming together, it should show that he is the highest object of our faith, our affections, and our obedience. Or we could put it this way. 
It should have the distinct effect of leaving the worshiper or attender of that service with thoughts of God's greatness, of his holiness, of his goodness, of his worthiness. Those are the things that should be preeminent in our minds and in our hearts. It should be such an experience that it reorients the direction of our soul and the gaze of our soul from self to God, from this world to God, upward to him, to delight in him. That should be the effect of a God-centered service. It should leave us realizing his worthiness to be served, his worthiness to be trusted, his worthiness to be loved. It should leave us with greater thoughts of his attributes and the work of his grace in the Son. It should leave us with amazement at his mercy to one so weak and so filled with remaining corruption and a deeper desire to see his glory and his supreme values spread through all of the earth and in our own lives. If we leave thinking more about ourselves and our experience than we do of God himself, then something is spiritually wrong with what took place in that event, in that public event. It is to say then that it should demonstrate our public worship that it is about him and it is not about us. That it is designed to capture our affections with who he is and not more of who we are. Indeed, however, this can be extremely subtle. This can be extremely subtle to err on this point. And the subtlety of man's self-centeredness in worship uh, can be hard to detect at times because it can be in the context of saying a lot of true things and a lot of right things about God. The error is not so much that true and false worship in this sense is about saying something that is true and then something that is explicitly false or an error. It really can come down to this a matter of emphasis, a matter of emphasis. What is the main goal in the end of that time together? What shows itself to be the main object of our affections and our desires and what we value? Well, of course, music becomes a good barometer of this. And so a helpful quote in relation to music, uh, this is a bit extended, this is the, the only other long one, but I think captures it so well I couldn't say it better. Uh, one says this, In an age increasingly suspicious of linear thought, there is much more respect for the feeling of things, whether a film or a church service. It is disturbingly easy to plot surveys of people, especially young people, drifting from a church of excellent preaching and teaching to one with excellent music, because it is alleged alleged there is better worship there. But we need to think carefully about this matter. Although there are things that can be done to enhance corporate worship, there is a profound sense in which excellent worship cannot be attained merely by pursuing excellent worship. You cannot find excellent corporate worship until you stop trying to find excellent corporate worship and pursue God himself. One sometimes wonders if we are beginning to worship worship rather than worship God. As a brother put it to me, it's a bit like those who begin by admiring the sunset and soon begin to admire themselves by admiring the sunset. I think that's one of the clearest statements on the issue that I've ever heard. The point, he goes on in this last paragraph section, the point is acknowledged in a praise chorus like, let's forget about ourselves and magnify the Lord and worship him. The trouble is is that after you've sung this repetitious chorus three or four times, you're no further ahead. The way you forget about yourself is by focusing on God, not singing about it, but by doing it. And that, I think, captures well the core issue. It is whether those effects 
or the, the value shown in what we do is God's, us as the object of God's affection or God as the object of our affections. And that really becomes the issue. Whether we sing much about our adoration of God or whether we actually demonstrate it in the entirety of what we do when we come together and how we live our lives. When worship is truly focused on God, then it will have some distinct effects on those who are a part of that worship. One would be this. It would greatly impress his greatness and holiness on our hearts. It would leave us with a distinct sense of God as he is in himself, glorious and creator and infinite, and ourselves as small and weak and dependent. It would produce in us precisely what the psalmist says in Psalm 8. O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens, so that we would respond, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? If we were to leave many services, we would leave with the distinct impression that God himself would be disappointed if he did not have us as the object of all of his affections. Post-fall, a distinct sense of our sinfulness is a part of this God-centeredness. The distinct sense of our remaining corruption and wretchedness in light of his holiness. Indeed, this is throughout Scripture as well when man comes face to face with the reality of who God is. We can think of Peter saying in the boat to Jesus in Luke 5, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. We have the classic picture which cannot be overemphasized of Isaiah, a prophet of God, in the presence of God who says, Woe to me, for I am a sinful man. I am a man of unclean lips. Or we can think of the Apostle Paul himself in Romans 7 when thinking of the goodness and the perfection of God as revealed in his law who said, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death? And so when coming face to face with God, it should leave us with a distinct sense of his greatness and our smallness, his perfections and our imperfections. That then, realizing what he has done for us in Christ, should leave us with a singular sense of the greatness of his grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that the theme of the song of the heart of those who have experienced God in truth and worshipped him in truth would be that that we read last week in Revelation 5.12 and we sang this morning. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Although we could also put that paradigm in slightly more theological terms, but I think that are very helpful. And those theological terms are this. It could be our gathered experience of God's transcendence and eminence. Well, those are fancy words. Transcendence merely speaks of God's otherness, that he is high above us, his exaltedness, his holiness, his glory in that sense. His eminence speaks of his nearness to us, the sense of his presence, the sense of his goodness to us and letting us draw near to him by his sovereign grace. Both of these are captured well in the book of Isaiah. Let me just read them to you. Isaiah 57, 15 says this. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and a holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to renew the heart of the contrite. In Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, he says this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. Now I would ask a question. 
and in asking this question, uh, say that it's a way to discern much of what is past in contemporary worship. Does contemporary worship leave those in its presence with that sense of contriteness and brokenness? Does it leave us with a sense of trembling at his word of him who is high and holy and so far above us? I would suggest that the problem with much of contemporary worship services is that the emphasis is almost exclusively then on imminence with transcendence either ignored or in the background or only mentioned to serve the purposes of our own experience of grace, mercy, and compassion or how God is working for us to, for us to experience the fullness of the potential and goodness that he has designed for us. In other words, it's those aren't wrong things, it's just the emphasis is wrong and they're backward and by being backward they become misleading and they become deceiving for many. So the order is important. We must begin in true worship and God-centered worship with who God is, with his transcendence. Notice what he said. The proper way to experience imminence is in what way? With a contrite and a lowly spirit and trembling at his word. That is the effect that imminence should have on us. And that means that imminence can only be experienced that way when we first come face to face with the transcendence of God and who he is. So that is incredibly important. Our understanding of worship then must begin again with God as holy, sovereign, and glorious. And this puts everything in a proper perspective. That we are weak and absolutely dependent creatures. That we are sinful and corrupt of ourselves before God. When confessed or when uh, before God in the sense of his transcendence and his glory, grace to us should be unexpected. It should be unexpected. It should not be something we expect God to give to us. It should be something that we are wonderfully surprised that he extends to us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, I would say, is not the attitude of much of contemporary Christianity. But it's only in that sense that imminence can take its proper place. That it can produce in us self-forgetfulness, self-denial, repentance, and the encouragement to live entirely for God's glory. That it can produce in us true humility that desires for him to receive the honor of our lives and in all of creation above all else. That can call us to the kind of service that he declared in 1 Peter 3. Not making excuses for our disobedience, not standing for our rights, but seeing as our lives is completely owned by Jesus Christ to serve him and to honor him in whatever circumstances and capacity he calls us to. Yet, much contemporary Christian and preaching services and music has little to do with these great realities. It has little to do in it that produces contriteness and lowliness. Rather, it tends to produce this attitude, the rebuke that Psalmist gave in Psalm 50:21. You thought I was just like you. You thought I was just like you. Maybe a little better, maybe a little bigger, but a whole lot like you. And he says that was your error. So let me suggest this then. It's not true worship then to be exclusively or primarily lost in God's benefit to us and our experience of mercy more than or above the amazement and the sweetness that is found in him who humbles us, who brings us low, and who extends surprisingly to us mercy in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. One went on to say this, kind of capturing this, and again putting it, 
in the context of music. There are far too few courses and services and sermons that expand our vision of God, his attributes, his works, his character, his words. If you wish to deepen the worship of the people of God, above all, deepen their grasp of his ineffable majesty in his person and in all of his works. That's how we can know that it's God-centered. When he stands at the center, when everything that we do as the gathered people of God leaves us with the distinct impression that he is the sole one in all of the universe to be adored and loved and valued and served and praised. When it leaves with the distinct impression that his worth and his value and his ways are far above anything that humans conjure or think is important for themselves. That he alone is the end of all that we do and all that we desire. That his attributes are the delight of his people. We won't go through these, but the Psalms, of course, stand as a good example of this. As it were, the worship book of the Old Testament. Filled with greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, the judgment of God, the salvation of God, the anger of God, the compassion of God, confession and forgiveness and all of the glories of him as the covenant God of Israel. And again, the creator and ruler of all of the nations. Well, if it's God-centered, then it has another aspect to it in the public event. One is this, that it is also going to be then word-centered. So when the people of God gather, in order for it to be true worship, it should be an expression and the proclamation of the theological truth that Scripture is God's self-revelation. It is his living word to us. It is the living word of the living God to his people in whom he dwells. It must be word-centered. How we handle the word of God when we come together as the people of God displays our view of scripture, which is to say it displays our view of God himself. How we handle his word and view his word is a direct line to how we view God himself. It relieves, uh, reveals our belief about the nature of scripture. And I would say in two primary areas, the authority of scripture and the sufficiency of scripture. This means then that all of the truth that God reveals is about himself primarily. His judgment as well as salvation, his mercy as well as his wrath, his sovereignty as well as human responsibility. True worship, when we gather together, hides none of those things but embraces them all as the full expression of who God is. To say that his word is authoritative and that God shows all authority in his church, it means then that it clearly presents when we gather together that we are under the word, that we are under the word. It means that it will have a clear display then and presentation of the whole counsel of God as the truth that we need to renew our minds and to shape our affections and to correct wrong thinking and attitudes. It's handled in such a way, Scripture is, that it reveals sin in the way of righteousness, that it tears down and builds up, that it corrects and restores, that it warns and encourages. It instructs us on what is true and what to believe. Scripture is handled accurately then, and, or Scripture, God is worshipped, when Scripture is handled accurately, when there's great care to make sure that it's rightly understood. So Paul's word to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. And again, here's where it needs to be discerning. It's scripture handled accurately. How many services have you sat through and sermons you have heard in, in, in some times where scripture is thrown about here and there, used quite often and quoted quite often and repeatedly used out of context? 
And Cube repeatedly meant to say something that the writer never meant for it to say. That is actually not true worship, though it has a lot of talk of God and a lot of words of Scripture. It's not just that Scripture is mentioned, and it's not just that Scripture is talked about. It's not just that Scripture is used in the sermon and the service. It is that Scripture is used rightly, that it's understood accurately, and that it's applied faithfully. That is how we worship God. Too often, Scripture's authority is diminished when it plays a supporting role to the sermon and service, where it plays a supporting role to the stories that need to be told or anecdotal events in the, in the speaker's life, when it is merely served to support a point that the speaker wants to make because the words happen to fit whatever is in his outline. In that sense, then, it's not true worship. True worship has not taken place because God's authority in his word has not been honored. And when this happened, it usually is attended with scripture being not only taken out of context, but also not clearly explained or even used in a vague and an unclear sense. Again, when this happens, it's not true worship. True worship then is word-centered when it also displays its sufficiency. Its sufficiency. In true worship, the church displays the reality that Scripture is sufficient for God's people. Not that it's Scripture plus psychology or whatever terms want to redefine things that God has clearly spoken about. It's not Scripture seen through the lens of man's felt needs. Not Scripture plus some business model to make the church more effective. It's not Scripture plus anything. It's not Scripture plus our own personal ideas. It's not scripture plus tradition. It's not scripture plus. It's scripture and scripture alone as being sufficient when clearly understood again and rightly applied to the life of God's people. True worship then holds scripture rightly interpreted and wisely applied as the completely sufficient word for all of life and godliness, even the hard things. And that is to say, there is the thought in much of the professing church that says scripture is fine when it tells you not to lie and to tell the truth, to be nice and not to be mean and selfish and those kind of things. But when it comes to the hard things of life, depression, many things that are labeled as significant mental illnesses, those things, the loss of family and abuse and those kind of things, well, that is beyond the bounds of the sufficiency of Scripture. Now we need something else. Now we need to come to our rescue, the insights of man and psychology in that whole field. Now we need the true professionals to come in. We certainly couldn't believe that Scripture rightly understood and applied could be sufficient for those tragedies of life. And the greatest horror of that is the many millennia that God's people have had to survive through the same tragedies without the insights of modern psychology. So we display, and when we do that, then we fail to worship God. We fail to show that He is sufficient in all that He has revealed about Himself and about his work in Christ, about the work of the Spirit, and about the truth of all that he is and the examples that he's given in his word as being sufficient for us. So Paul says this to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That is when scripture is shown to be sufficient. 
when we stand alone on all that God has said, that we do our best to understand it as accurately as we can. And we can and do in the community of God's people apply it and live it out wisely to the deep issues of life, indeed to every issue of life. And we say of his word, it is enough. It is enough. We can be equipped for all that God has called us to. So, in terms of the public event, just some thoughts on that. God is truly worshipped when he is kept at the center. When we can come together and say we leave not thoughts of ourselves as being center in our affections, but thoughts of who God is and lost in who he is. When his word is shown to be both authoritative and sufficient for all of life, that it is through his word that the King of kings and the Lord of lords speaks from heaven to his people gathered to instruct them, to help them, to encourage them, to train them, to convict them, to shape them in the ways of holiness. Let me go to secondly then. True worship can be discerned by our personal experience. Our personal experience. So the public event of worship can have all the right elements. It could be God-centered and word-centered. But the question remains, is our response to that true worship? Is our response to that true worship? And how can we say, how can we discern it? Well, let me note first then that true worship is the fruit of regeneration. It can only be offered and experienced by one who is actually regenerate. An unregenerate person can have emotions, can even have sincerity, but cannot have a true delight in who God is in himself and in Christ. So Jonathan Edwards, you're familiar with. So Jonathan Edwards uh, was a major instrument uh, in the hands of God uh, there were others, and there were other uh, awakenings at this time, but most significantly, uh, the great awakening is associated to the ministry of the man, Jonathan Edwards. And, and so not everybody embraced what was happening, and there was certainly true and false mixed in with the things that the Spirit of God was doing, and some said it was all bad, and some said it was all good. And Edwards cut the line right down the middle and said, how do we discern, how do we discern what is a true work of God and what is not? What is the true effect of regeneration and what is not? And we realize in his talking about this that it wasn't so different back in the 1700s as it is even in our day. So he has a whole book that would be worth your reading called Religious Affections, but he also has a well-known sermon that addresses these things as well. It's entitled The Divine and Supernatural Light. And in it he says this in one part. "'Tis not every affecting view that men have of the things of religion that is this spiritual and divine light. Men, by mere principles of nature, are capable of being affected with things that have a special relation to religion as well as other things. A person by mere nature, for instance, may be liable to be affected with the story of Jesus Christ, with the sufferings he underwent, as well as by an uh, other tragical story. He may be the more affected with it from the interest he conceives mankind to have in it. Does that sound familiar? He may be affixed with a lively and eloquent description of many pleasant things that attend the state of the blessedness of heaven and yet be very destitute of spiritual light. Not so different. Man can come to religion and be enamored with religion, can be enamored with stories of Jesus Christ, can be enamored with thoughts of heaven and all of the glories and the blessings that attend those who will be there and yet never have to experience the regenerating work and realities of the Holy Spirit. People may be emotionally affected by many things and yet still remain in their fallen nature. 
They may be affected with many things even related to the gospel without actually treasuring and worshiping the God revealed in it. Unregenerate man can be moved by stories of grace. Unregenerate man can watch the passion of Christ and weep and feel very significantly intense about what he viewed on the film or to hear it described in a certain sermon. Men can be very affected emotionally with God's goodness by encouragements of his help and mercy without actually ever being convicted of their own sinfulness or having a complete desire for his glory or love for his being as he is in himself. Do you see the difference? Music can be powerfully used to move the emotion with many Christian and religious themes but never cause the thoughts to rise higher than one's self or one's self in relation to some supposed benefit of God. That's the problem. Even if it's not balanced, and again, if it doesn't start with transcendence, even these emotional responses to things that are religious in nature and talk about the gospel in Christ can really be more about ourselves and have nothing to do with God. God is seen only and delighted in as he is a benefit to us. So, capturing this, Edwards says this very well. Spiritual and divine light is a true sense of the divine excellency of the things revealed in the word of God and a conviction of the truth and readily of them, a real sense of the excellency of God and Jesus Christ and the work of redemption and the ways of work of God revealed in the gospel. So the very essence of regeneration then is to behold and spiritually apprehend the beauty and the excellencies of God as he is in himself and as he is revealed in Christ and in Scripture. And this is exactly what we see, isn't it, in Jesus' own ministry. He went to, famously, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And what did he tell Nicodemus? Nicodemus was steeped in the religion of his day. Nicodemus was steeped in a knowledge of the Scripture. Nicodemus was steeped in a life ordered by those very things. His very identity as a teacher of the law was one who had dedicated his entire self to fastidious obedience to the covenant God and to his word. And yet Jesus comes to him and what does he say? You can't see it. You can't perceive it. Here it is standing right in front of you. You're very Messiah. You recognize that I am from God. You recognize the works that I do. No man can do. And yet you're totally blind. You're totally blind. There needs to be something else that happens. You need to be born again. And you need to be born again by the Holy Spirit. And what will be the fruit of this regenerating work of the Holy Spirit? Well, all of a sudden, you'll see Jesus and have faith in him when he is exalted and lifted up from the earth, not only in the cross first, but ultimately in his ascension to heaven. And you will worship him. Not only will you worship him, but that worship will be shown in your obedience to him. And you will come to the light to show that everything that you do has been wrought in God. That it's something that has been wrought in God. In other words, it wasn't your religion that made you or that makes you right with God. It is something that God must do in you and it's going to center on an understanding of who Christ is. Paul explained it this way, yes, in relation to Jews in the larger context, but as a principle that applies to all men in 2 Corinthians when he says this. Again, familiar words. But he says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. What has he blinded their minds to? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That is what is revealed by the Spirit in a true work of the Spirit. 
Not merely ideas about God, not merely sweet stories in reference to the suffering of God and to his mercy to mankind and those kind of things, but it is to see God and Christ in such a way that he is the delight of the soul, that everything about him becomes the treasure of the believing heart, that everything about him becomes the occupation of the mind to understand and to be shaped by and of the will to follow with all of who we are. That is what it means. It means that it's not merely leaving with some emotional experience. That doesn't prove regeneration. It is to be left with an adoring heart towards God, to be amazed by Him, and to find in Him a treasure. And it ultimately then is evidenced by this. Obviously, there's more to say, but we'll end on this. It's evidenced by an obedient faith. And let me suggest to you then, at the end of the day, this is the truest test. This is the truest test of faith. It's the truest test of regeneration. It's the truest test of worship. It is obedient faith. Obedient faith. That's precisely what God has called us to and what true worship produces. It is the question of whether whatever we experience as worship, whether it produces in us greater faith, obedience, and love. And this is brought to a head in a passage that really just brings all of this together in a statement, one we've looked at before, I think at the beginning of the year. And it is by Paul in Romans 12.1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That phrase, by the mercies of God, captures the fruit of regeneration. It means that the mercies of God are experienced in such a way that they bring about transformation, a reorientation of the soul, a redirection of the will, new thoughts and effects on the mind and the things that we think about and that we treasure. The response of this, then, is to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. True worship then has this effect and a true experience of the mercies of God to give ourselves to him in humble obedience and service. If we have some kind of wild experience, but we can leave just as enamored with the world as when we came in and not more detached from the world, then let me suggest it's not been true worship. It's been something self-centered, it's been something emotional, it's been whatever it is, but it hasn't been the worship of God. The necessary effect, the unquestionable effect of the true worship of God and coming into his presence is that it pulls us out of this world and into the world to come. That it takes our affections off of the things of this world and it puts them on Christ. Takes them off of self and puts them on the glory of God. That is the effect of true worship. If we can leave and we haven't had a, don't leave with a stronger sense of obedience to God, then it's questionable what we actually did. And so he says that true worship, a true understanding of the mercies of God, is then to present ourselves to him wholly, fully, completely, in a way that we become less and less, and let me even suggest this, more in conflict with the world that stands in opposition to God more ready to suffer out of faithfulness to God, more ready to stand on the truth despite what ridicule comes because our hearts have been captured with the highest and the greatest value of the universe and that is God himself and his redemption and his glory. And so he says not only that, 
but it's going to produce in us, and we mentioned this, the falling on our knees, a true humility. A true humility. Not humility and obedience that goes as far as we find acceptable in our own lives. I'll obey up to this point. I'll deal with this much insult, but then I'm all on it with anger and unrevenge. I'll deal with this much perceived sense of my rights being defiled, but then I'm going to stand up for them because that's what I do. No, it means there's a true humility that truly says, that it truly experiences the mercies of God, responds in worship in such a way that we authentically, sincerely, and deeply become less in our own eyes and God becomes greater. Our will becomes more conquered by his will and our affections by all that he is. It is then to say that it is an experience that helps us to have more of a mind set on the spirit, as he said in chapter 8. A mind set on the spirit. A mind set on the spirit that also puts to death the deeds of the flesh. And that then points us in this. What is then the true experience of worship? What in personal experience does it produce? Well, this wholehearted obedience, this humility, this being transformed more to his likeness and not to the world. And again, I just want to suggest if we can leave and love the things of the world just as much as when we came in, then we have to question what we truly worshiped and experienced. But if we do find ourselves being moved away from those things, then we can say, yes, God has revealed himself into our soul in such a way that he has captured us and done a work of grace. It produces this. One other thought on this, just very briefly. It produces then a greater desire for holiness. A greater desire for holiness. Paul says this, and again in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Verses you're familiar with. If we with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. It means if we've truly beheld the glory of God in Christ, we will be, by the secret work and inward work of the Holy Spirit, more and more shaped to that image of glory that we see. In other words, more shaped to Christ. More evident of the life of Christ in us more committed, again, to a life of obedience. And again, I think I said that word a lot, but this I do want to make clear. And this is for all of us to discern, one, whether we're regenerate or unregenerate, but also whether as a regenerate person our worship is sincere or self-centered. And that is this. John said, again, we're familiar with, it's not the one who says I've come to know him, but the one who keeps his commandments the one who walks in the way of righteousness, the one who listens to the word of God and not to the spirit that is in the world. That is what it is. It is that the word of God has the effect of shaping us. It has the way of shaping us. So how do we know? There's more to be said. But how do we know? How do we know if we've worshiped truly? It is that when we gather together, our, word is, our services are authentically God-centered that we leave with a distinct impression of who God is, his greatness, his glory, his grace in Christ, that it is word-centered, that we realize that all of that is produced as we yield ourselves to the revelation of himself in his written word that is to us authoritative and it is sufficient. 
It is that in experiencing all of those things, we have a personal response that delights in the beauty of God that we have seen there, that delights in his greatness, that finds satisfaction in who he is before any perceived benefit. And the perceived benefits that we have are to us amazing and humbling and awe-inspiring and obedience-producing. And then that becomes the final test. It's true worship when we leave with that sense of God that produces a following after God and obedience to him, an inward desire for holiness that does battle with sin, not merely in outward obvious sins, but internal sins of our thoughts and of our attitudes that then shows forth in our actions. If that is what's taking place, if that's the battle that is in us and that we're strengthened in when we leave this place, then we can say true worship has taken place. True worship has happened, whether it came with tears or dry eyes, a deep emotional experience, or morally a strengthening in our conviction and faith to God to walk with him. True worship has taken place if that's what it produces. And that's what we long for. When we can sing with all sincerity, not merely in the emotional sense of the words, but in a deep reality of the conviction of them, this hymn that we so often do sing, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, and my all. And that's the kind of worship that we want to bring when we come to the table. We remember that the one we offer ourselves to is the true King of Kings, our Redeemer. His kingdom is the kingdom that's coming and the only one that will endure forever. And he brought and made us citizens in this kingdom by his own suffering and his own death. And for this reason, ultimately, and if you're God's child, you do rejoice in this for his glory. Let's pray as the men bring the elements forward. Father, thank you for the revelation of your glory in Christ. Thank you that you have redeemed us. Will you fill our hearts with you, true experience, that we want to get lost in you. There is no greater good to our soul than you. There is no greater joy and anchor and strength and courage to our soul than who you are and what you've done for us in Christ and the promises that you've given to us. May we rest in these. May we delight in you. Will you expose every false way in us, even as David prayed, every hurtful way? Will you help us to evaluate our coming together in truth and not merely by superficial means? Will you produce in us as we come together as your people a greater and increased desire to love you and demonstrate that love in our love for one another and our help to one another and our encouragement to one another to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we pray now that you would focus our eyes on that upward call and those future promises and the table that we take, the sign that you've given to us to strengthen our faith and point us beyond this world to heaven realities ultimately. We pray these things in your matchless name, Lord Jesus. Amen.